Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And he said, and they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this shall you, shall you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that the words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Mark. Let's pray for for the word and for this time in the word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you continue to um, show us your truth through the lives of other people um, and help us to remember and keep in mind as we look again at the life of Joseph and his brothers now that uh, the point of these stories is not um, that the people in them are the heroes, 
just like the point of our own story is not that we are the heroes, Lord, but that you are the central figure, you are the heroic one. So would we see truth about you in this, Lord, and better understand how you work in our lives through what we see here with Joseph and his brothers, God. Uh, it's in your name that we pray, amen. So um, who here loves drama? And I don't mean like TV drama. I mean like loves getting in drama. Anybody? Anybody here just really love? That's weird. Okay. Nobody. Nobody. Turns out that we don't really like situations where all of a sudden we're like, caught up in the middle of some crazy drama, whether it's with our family or our coworkers or our neighbors or our friends or whatever it is, like you find yourself sometimes in life in these situations where you're just like, what is happening? You're talking about this thing way too much. You're having to give way too much time and attention to something that seems dramatic. You kind of get sucked into it maybe no matter how hard you try. And when we read about what's going on here with Joseph and his brothers, it comes across like Joseph is the king of drama. Like he's just like, I am going to make this the most dramatic thing ever because when I get my big reveal, it is going to be a big reveal. That's not entirely what's happening here. But if you were to read um, the, all of the chapters that encompass this part of the story, there's a lot of chapters that encompass this. There's like five chapters in Genesis, and Mark just kind of jumped us from the beginning of it to sort of the end. And I want to kind of look at those briefly and just give you a clearer picture of all that really is happening here so that you can see that Joseph is either obsessed with drama or um, he's, there's something bigger going on. So what's happened now, we read in the beginning of this, uh, of this passage, is that the same famine that's affected everyone else has affected Joseph's brothers, his father. And so his father has uh, sent them to Egypt. And um, because he is not shy, apparently, about having favorite children, uh, not a great trait, he says, um, I'm going to keep back Benjamin, the youngest and clearly most favorite son, and send the rest of you, and uh, don't screw this up, basically. And so they go, and they get there, and Joseph sees them. Now, there's two things that would have led to this, one or the other. There's one of two options as to what happened here. One, Joseph has been waiting for his brothers to show up for years. He has positioned himself somewhere as he does his work throughout the day to see that he can, he can see whenever these 11 guys show up um, or 10 guys or however many guys are going to show up from Canaan looking for this. And, uh, and he's been waiting for them to come and that moment has finally arrived, which would imply that um, even though Joseph says in the naming of his sons previously last week when we talked about kind of saying, indicating, I have moved on from this, I've let go, I've, 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 I'm no longer like lamenting what has happened with my brothers that maybe he still is, right? Maybe he's still holding on to it and waiting for some kind of closure here. So either Joseph has been um, waiting for them to show up or God orchestrated this. And there's a point at which they just came to get grain and Joseph happened to be there. It would not make sense for someone in, high, in as high of a position as him to just be there when random people come to get grain during this uh, famine. But he, nevertheless, he ends up being there when his brothers come and he uses an interpreter to speak to them. He speaks the Egyptian language and, and he uses this interpreter to speak to them as just another way of showing them, like disguising who he is to them. They, they can't tell who he is. They don't know who this guy is, right? 
And then he immediately decides to be mean to them, just immediately. He's like, you guys are spies probably. And they're like, no, we're not spies. And he's like, you guys are probably spies. And they're like, we promise that we're not spies. And they're like, we have literally the most legitimate reason to be here like everyone else. What is your problem, man? They don't say that to him, but that's obviously probably what they're thinking. So then he says, okay, well then why don't you all just be in jail? And so he throws them in jail. And then after a couple of days, he says, I'll tell you what, um, I'll let all of you out but one, but you have to go home and you have to get your youngest brother. He's like obsessed with getting the younger brother there. And they're like, oh no, this is literally a worst case scenario for us because we're pretty sure that our father's been pretty clear that he has a favorite child. That's our youngest brother. And now he's telling us we have to go get the youngest brother. How could this be any worse, right? So they end up leaving. He gives them grain, fills up their sacks, and they leave and they go home to tell the news to their father that their brother is in jail, Simeon, and uh, they've got to bring back Benjamin if they have any hopes of getting him out. Does not bode well for Simeon, by the way, right? Like, not, not great to be that guy. You know he's sitting in jail going, well, I'm never getting out because my dad's not gonna swap Benjamin for me. Well, Joseph also makes sure that they put the money back in their bags. So basically, they brought money to buy the grain, fills up the bags with grain, and then puts the money back in the bags. So they're on their way home, and they look in the bag, and they're like, oh, no, our money's still here. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Now what? Now we have to deal with this, right? He's probably gonna be mad at us. He's probably gonna think that we stole our money back, that we're trying to trick him. And so they go home, they tell their father, he gets mad. He says exactly what you think Jacob's gonna say. What have you guys done? You've totally screwed this thing up in every way you possibly could. And then they just eat grain and forget about their brother for two years apparently. And then after two years, all the grain's gone and they go, you know, we really should go back there and get some more grain. All right, well, listen, if we go back, we know what's gonna happen. We've gotta bring Benjamin this time. And the father's like, all right, well, I do really want that grain. Don't care about my son in jail, but I do want that grain. And so um, why don't we do this? And then he invents the concept of the gift basket. He basically is like, let's take the finest of everything that we make here and we're gonna send it to them and we're gonna just bring that and we're gonna, you guys are gonna be, you guys be really nice. I want you to be on your best behavior and then hopefully that buys us his favor and he doesn't keep your youngest brother who you're gonna take with you. And then they go with the fear of God in them that if they lose their younger brother, they are dead meat, right? Don't even bother coming back, right? Foreshadowing. So they go, they bring him all this stuff and he throws him a party, a banquet, is like, thanks for all this. You guys are great. Let's have a party. Let's hang out. And then um, fills up their sacks with stuff, meets the younger brother, sends them all on their way. Couldn't have gone any better. Wow, okay, this is, uh, this is going pretty well. Okay, this is good. This is good. He really likes gift baskets. That does the trick. Then they get halfway. They open up their sacks and they discover that in Benjamin's sack is his cup, the, this, this ruler's cup, and that's a big deal. And now it's like, Benjamin, did you really steal his cup? No, I didn't steal his cup. Like, well, I don't know why it's in there. Well, how did it get in there? What is going on? God, why are you doing this to us? Sure enough, guys show up and they're like, hey, he's missing his cup. Do you guys have any cups on you? And they're like, uh, look at all the sacks, find it in Benjamin's, take him back to jail. Now the brothers have a decision to make. Do we just go home? and get in the biggest trouble of our lives because we're pretty sure that this is exactly what our father was afraid would happen? Or do we go back and do we try to get our younger brother and potentially go into jail ourselves? What do we do now? They go back and they, um, and they end up like trying to stick up for their brother and saying, it was not him, don't take him, take us. Like, don't do this. We care about him, he's our brother. 
And then Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion, and the big reveal comes. He says, it's me, it's Joseph, it was me all along. Aha, pulls off the mask or whatever he does, starts speaking the right language, whatever he does. First, he kicks all the Egyptians out and he makes it, which doesn't really matter because he's apparently such a loud crier that he cries so loud that it's like the Egyptians are outside the door going like, yikes, this is like awkward, right? This guy's really feeling it. This is all happening in a couple of years in the lives of these brothers. And what we're seeing in this part of the story is basically we've watched Joseph's life just fall apart the past couple of weeks as we've been looking at it. And now Joseph's life's doing pretty well. Now we get to watch the brothers' lives fall apart. And that's exactly what Joseph makes sure he does. Why does he do this? Is Joseph just the most vindictive, vengeful person ever? If so, we can all relate to that. And maybe we like this part of the story the best. We're like, I've been there. I know how that feels. I'm gonna, I'm gonna memorize this part of scripture and use it as often as I can to justify the things I do, right? Or maybe there's something else going on. What these brothers are dealing with is they find themselves in a situation where literally their life just falls apart around them. They're like, they've got a powerful enemy. He seems to have a personal vendetta against them. Nothing that's happening is really making sense, but it just keeps getting worse. And on top of that, their dad is mad at them. Of course he is, because he's always like that probably. And they all know that he doesn't love them as much as this other kid anyway. And this is all happening. Their life is a complete mess. And in the midst of this total mess, all the pain that they're dealing with, all the suffering that they're dealing with, the question comes up inevitably in their mind. God, why are you doing this? They say that at one point. They say, God, why are you doing this? They don't say, why is that ruler doing this? But when they get back and that they find that the money's still in their um, sacks with all the grain, they just, they throw their hands up and they go, God, why are you doing this in our lives? Why are you letting this happen to us? This is the question that we ask. That question that they're asking is the exact question that we ask when life starts to fall apart, when we find ourselves in trial and in suffering. God, why are you doing this, is the question. And what we see, because we get to look behind the scenes here, is we see what God is doing and what's going on in these guys' lives. Why does God allow the pain, is the question. Why does God allow the pain, is the question that we ask again and again and again. And there's a couple of things. First, we see why God allows pain in our lives through what Joseph is trying to do with his brothers. What is Joseph trying to do here? What is he actually trying to accomplish? Is he just trying to get revenge? No. Is he just trying to get payback? No. Is he just trying to punish them? No. There's something else going on here. He's actually trying to test them. Joseph is trying to test his brothers and figure out who they are right now. That's the first thing he's doing. He's testing them. Why does God allow the pain? Sometimes it is there to test us. Now, I'm just going to say right now as sort of a disclaimer that whenever we talk about pain and we try to say anything about God and pain that, that, that brings up things like testing or any kind of difficult thing that might come of it, that's an incredibly unpopular thing to talk about because it's a very countercultural thing to talk about. And the reason it's countercultural is not our particular culture. It's because no person wants to think 
that a God who would love them would ever allow something like testing to happen in their life. That just doesn't fit with our understanding of how love is supposed to work. But when you stop and think about it, it actually lines up perfectly with how real, genuine, sincere, meaningful love does work. So it sounds callous, it sounds mean, it sounds insensitive to say that God would allow pain in our lives in order to test us. But that is exactly what he does. When life starts to fall apart, we find ourselves tested in a way that we haven't been before. When we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic, when we find ourselves dealing with huge illness, when we find that our job gets a lot harder than it used to be, when we find that our family or our kids or our spouse or marriage gets a lot harder than it used to be, when we find that there are wildfires around us that make it feel like we're living in some kind of a horror movie with orange skies everywhere, when there's an ice storm and the sky is literally falling down upon us if we go outside, when these things happen to us, when life starts to fall apart, they test us. That's the nature of difficult situations. And there's two components to testing. One is trying to figure out where someone is at. So you test a thing to figure out what it really is, what is at its essence, at its core. And this is one of the things that suffering does that causes the real me to come out. The other thing that testing does is it puts before us decisions and choices that really matter a lot. And the question then becomes, how will I respond to this test? Will I take this test as seriously as I should? We can all think of times in life where we look backwards and go, I should have taken that test more seriously, right? But it's hard for us to do that when trial and suffering come. Because what we want to do is we want to just survive, get through, maybe numb the pain of what's going on, maybe try to ignore it or try to focus on someone or something else. And we don't actually take the test for what it is, what has been put before us. We read in James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, various kinds, not just one kind of trial, not just persecution, not just sickness, not just like the pain and suffering that comes in any area of life, not just the government being too involved more than you think it should be or not as involved as you think that it should be, your job going the way that it should be or not the way that it should be, all various types of trials. When you meet trials of various kinds, Count it all joy. Why? Why on earth could we do that? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It is assumed here that trials of various kinds are testing of our faith and that that is actually a good thing. Why? Because it produces steadfastness. It produces something in us that it wasn't there before. This testing produces a steadfastness in our faith. Joseph's brothers show up, and he has no idea who these guys are anymore. Are they the same brothers that threw me in a pit and sold me into slavery? Are they the same brothers who hated me the way that they did before? Are they like that still? Would they treat their youngest brother that way still? Have they changed in any meaningful way? Because that matters to him, is knowing who they are. 
So he puts them in difficult situations to see what comes out, right? He takes their brother to see how they react. He gives them back their money to see how they will react. He calls them spies to see how they will react. And the real them comes out. What we see that's pretty ugly in this story, I think, is what we see in Jacob the father. It seems like the greatest amount of dysfunction, seems like the greatest amount of unhealth comes from Jacob. And if anything, we see how this patriarch can create an environment in his family that's like so toxic that it kind of spreads to all these other sons and everybody else involved. This family, starting out at our story, was like super dysfunctional. And what we said at the beginning of our series was the good news about God is that he loves us so much that he meets us in our dysfunction and he actually cares enough to move us beyond that in hard circumstances. There's a, there's a famine and what does Jacob do? He like looks to his sons at the very beginning of this and he says, why are you standing around looking at each other? Go to Egypt and get some grain. That's not nice, you know? Like, but I think I could see someone saying that and uh, not being very nice about it. He doesn't trust them at all. So he says, don't take your youngest brother. You already lost one. You'll probably lose another one. Thanks, dad. I mean, he's right. They actually did something much worse than lose him. But still, not cool, right? Not nice. He blames them when they return without Simeon. It's not their fault. They have not done anything wrong. But what does Jacob do right away? He blames his sons. Reuben, one of the sons, offers. He says, how about this, dad? I'll give you my sons. You can hold them. And then if we don't bring back Benjamin, then you can do whatever you want with them. And he's like, no, not good enough. I don't care nearly as much about your sons as I do about my favorite son, Benjamin. Thanks, Dad. Also, Reuben, what the heck, right? Like, uh, everyone in this family is probably looking around going like, we're a mess. Uh, pointing fingers, blaming each other, yelling at each other. They leave their brother there for two years. They just leave him there in jail. And like I said, he knows no one's coming to get him. He's like, I know what the stakes are, and there's no way that I'm as much important as Benjamin is. His only hope is that they run out of grain and they come back, which is exactly what they did. This testing reveals a lot of unhealth in these guys and in their family, but it also reveals some things about them that seem to be good. It ultimately comes down to all this drama, everything that happens leads us to this very huge moment where the brothers find themselves in a situation. Their brother has been taken. Benjamin's been taken. He's in jail. They could go home with their money. They could go home with their sacks of grain. They can go home and tell their father and not in any way be lying or be responsible for what happens. Say, sorry, dad, but your favorite, who we probably can't stand, he's gone. This, was, this is like a reliving of the situation with Joseph. And are these the kind of guys who they were before? Are they going to believe that their problem is Joseph or Benjamin? Are they going to believe that if they could just let that go, not do the right thing and go after their younger brother, which would be their responsibility, if they just let it happen, let it go, they're fine, they're in the clear. And what do they choose to do? How do they respond to the test that's put before them? They go back to Egypt and they plead with this ruler. And they say, please give us back our brother. Please take us instead. This test reveals who they really are. 
It, it reveals. And this is one of the hard things about suffering is that God often does use it for this purpose. We find out that um, in, in chapter 42, verse 24, we read about this very emotional moment when they're talking to each other in front of Joseph. And he's using the interpreter, but he can hear them and understand them, obviously. And so they're saying, like, uh, they turn to each other at one point, and they just say, like, you see, like, like, we shouldn't have done what we did with our brother Joseph. And they, and they, and they talk about it. They, they, go, they refer back to it. And Joseph, it says, is overwhelmed with emotion, and he has to go away, and he has to weep. Because he's been wondering, do these guys even remember me? Do these guys even care about what they did? Are they just as cold-hearted and mean as they were before? And what we find, what he finds is no. They, they didn't just forget about me. They've been carrying around the weight of this, the guilt of this, all these years. And it overwhelms him with emotion because now he knows that he isn't just an afterthought to them. What Joseph also does is he's not actually punishing them. He ends up giving them the grain. He gives them back their money. In the end, they actually end up getting pretty favorable things. And why does he ask them to bring their, their last brother? Why does he so fixated on Benjamin coming and getting him there? Well, that tells us about what Joseph himself is trying to accomplish in what's happening here. You see, Joseph has learned something, and what he's learned through the course of his life is that the single most important thing in life is not your circumstances. It's not how things are going for you, but it's that God's will is going to be done. And so what he cares about now more than anything else is that he had this dream. He had these dreams when he was a kid. And in these dreams, his brothers and his father and everybody bowed down before him well, his life has gone like such a roller coaster and he finds himself at this point where, where so much of what's happened in these dreams has come true. He's now one of the rulers of Egypt that he's going, what I care about more than anything else is that the things that God has said would happen will happen. So I need my brother here. I need my father here. I need them to do the things that were spoken of in this dream so that God's will is done because in my life, that is now the most important thing. It's not because he's obsessed with getting people to worship him. It's not because he's fixated on getting a younger brother to come and that's all he cares about. It's because this is the way that what God has said can actually come to pass. And to Joseph, that's honestly all that matters anymore. All that matters is that God's will is done. There's something else that we see God doing in the midst of the pain. And it's this. Sometimes it's there to discipline us. If, if, if the idea that God is testing us is not a popular idea, then the idea that God is disciplining us is like the least popular idea. Okay? So if there's something in you right now that's fighting against this going like, are you kidding me? There's probably a reason for that. Now, we all know that, like, the worst thing is when you're in pain and you're suffering and someone sits down next to you like Job's friends and tries to explain why they think God might be doing it. And if someone were to begin that sentence with, well, maybe God's disciplining, like, don't finish the sentence, right? I mean, is there anything more painful than a person trying to make sense of something that's painful only to be completely off base or to reveal something about themselves instead or just straight up tell you something they don't like about you and go, maybe God wants you to change that thing. We hate that. We hate the feeling of that. 
But the Bible is actually speaks of the discipline of the Lord, not as this negative, horrible thing, but actually as a sign and an indication that God loves us the most. If my son and his friends go and do something and get in a bunch of trouble, I'm gonna have, a, I'm gonna have to figure out how to discipline him because I love him. What I'm not gonna do is worry about a discipline as friends. I'm gonna be like, whatever, you know? Like, that's not my problem. I don't have to figure out how to help them not do that again. I only have to figure out how to help you not do that again. Why? Because you're my child. You're the one that I love. This is how scripture explains the discipline of the Lord that comes through pain and suffering in our lives. We read in Proverbs 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So we read about in Proverbs, the Lord's discipline will probably be something that you'll want to despise. You'll want to tell yourself immediately, what do we associate that with, right? Not caring about a person, not loving a person, just being mad at a person. When the, the, the author of Proverbs is telling us, it's the opposite, when God brings us through things in order to reveal the things in our life that need to go away, in order to reveal the baggage, the guilt, the shame, the sin, the things that are there beneath the surface that come out during trials, when God is disciplining us in order to help root those things out, he's doing it. Why? Because he loves us, not because he hates us. We read in Hebrews 12, uh, right before this, that proverb was quoted in Hebrews. And then they go on to say, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Wow, that's pretty heavy. That's a pretty bold statement to make, right? But it's true. I will discipline those I love and care about. I won't bother to do it with those that I won't. You see, there's a difference between punishment and discipline. And when we hear discipline, we think punishment. But punishment looks backwards. It looks at, it looks at getting back for something that happened in the past. Discipline is entirely focused on looking forward. This word discipline, when, when, when interpreted, literally, it's a, it's a chastening, which means like a holding back or a restraining or a removing of something that is, that is hurting a, a person or an animal, right? So discipline is all about saying, I care about your future, and I want it to be brighter than your past, and so I'm willing to do something that's difficult in order to make that thing a reality or a possibility, why would I do that? Because I take responsibility for your future. Is it possible that when pain and suffering come, that what we're often overwhelmed by is a feeling that God doesn't take responsibility for our future? That God doesn't care about how our life is gonna go? When in reality, it's the exact opposite. God is saying, I'm allowing these things to happen, possibly because I take responsibility for what happens in the future for you, and I want to help shape you into somebody who can get there and who can do that thing. 
we read in the last verse here. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is never, ever fun or joyful or pleasurable to us. It seems painful. But later it yields something. The peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So in the midst of the chaos and the noise and the pain and suffering of the discipline that is happening now potentially, we look ahead to the peace of the fruit righteousness that comes later. Now, to be clear, is all pain and suffering the result of God disciplining us? No, it's not. Is all pain and suffering the result of God testing us? No, it's not. But there are times when it happens as a result of those things. And what's happening to these brothers at the hands of Joseph, really from God himself, is those things. So what Joseph learns is he learns, uh, and I kind of was alluding to this before, he learns something about God that gives us a tremendous amount of encouragement in the midst of what can seem like really hard news, which is how much God uses this testing, how much God uses this discipline in our lives often. Why is Joseph um, doing these things? Why is he allowing this stuff to happen? It's because Joseph wants to see that what God said would happen ultimately comes to fruition. He wanted to see his entire family standing there before him, father, brothers, everybody, bowing down to him, not because he wanted to be worshipped by them, but because that would mean that what God said would happen, happened. And there was nothing more important in life at this point than God would saying what happened, happens. Why does God allow the pain? God allows the pain because he is still in control. The pain doesn't mean God's not in control. It does not mean that God doesn't love us or care about us. We, he allows the pain because he can still be in control in the midst of it. In fact, he can work through it and he can use it and he can accomplish things in us through it because of how in control he is. These things that are happening are either meaningless and random or they are purposeful and they are valuable. What these brothers and their father and their, their are enduring in this, these passages are either meaningless and random and cruel or they're purposeful and they're valuable. We're in a famine. Our dad is kind of a jerk. The ruler of Egypt seems to have a personal vendetta against us. That's not good. Our brother's in jail. We're headed home to break that news to dad. We open up our bag and our money's still in it. What it says there is it says their hearts failed them. They stopped. That's what we read about in Genesis 42 there. They opened the bag and it says their hearts failed them and they stopped. And then they said, why are you doing this to us? Why is God doing this to us? Right? At that point, it's not about this guy or this guy or this person or this person. 
And that's why when we talk about suffering and we talk about pain and difficult situations, we have to talk about God because that's where we'll all go. We will all ultimately find ourselves at a point in life asking this question of God, not of anyone else around us. We will be saying, this isn't just about him anymore or her anymore or them anymore. I thought it was. I thought it was just them doing this, but it's not. This isn't just about the famine anymore, about my job anymore. This isn't just about our struggle with, with having kids or not having kids or, 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 or the discipline of them or, or the, the marriage that I'm in or the circumstances of my life or the, the state of anything around me. It's not just about that thing. Why God? Why God? Would you allow this? Why would you do this to me is how it feels. And the answer that we get is, first of all, God is in control in the midst of that thing, which means that God has the ability to work in it and accomplish something through it, that it can be purposeful. What is it that God's accomplishing through it? There are so many different things that God accomplishes through the pain and the suffering and the trial of our life. But sometimes he's testing. He's testing in order to reveal in us the things that we would not otherwise see. There are things that, that, that we numb, that we ignore, that we stay too busy to pay attention to, that when life starts to fall apart, they rise to the surface and you see them. If you've ever tried to plan a funeral with your family, you know that. If you've ever uh, tried to go through a significant uh, life trial with people around you, you know what tends to rise to the surface. We see who people really are, including ourselves. Sometimes God does it because he's putting something in front of us and he's saying, will you make the right choice here? Because this matters, it's important. And sometimes it's because there are things in our lives that are hurting us and that are hurting other people. And because God loves us and he cares about the future for us, he allows us to live in seasons of discipline. In seasons of looking and saying, what is it that's in my life that could be hurting me that God is trying to reveal in this? There are so many things that God can do in the midst of the pain that he does in the midst of the pain. And the difficulty and the struggle for us is always trusting that he's in control. But when we do, then we can begin to be a part of those things happening rather than just praying and praying and praying that they would go away. Let's pray.